Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. In my second podcast, Second Generation Gender Bias, I talked about well-documented scholarly research, which supports a host of biases that can create inequitable barriers for women. Of the four biases I discussed, prove it again bias, the maternal wall, the tightrope bias, and tug-of-war bias, I received more emails, direct messages, and general comments regarding the tug-of-war bias and notably Queen Bee Syndrome. As a reminder, tug-of-war bias relates to the strategies women often implement to navigate the tightrope and even prove it again biases. It's that balance between kind of assimilating and resisting stereotypically masculine traits. It can lead women to begin to judge each other on the right way to be a woman and oftentimes the right way to behave in the workplace, which brings us to today's topic, queen bee syndrome. Unfortunately, it is a very resilient narrative. Queen bee syndrome is a phenomenon first defined in the early 1970s, and it is a derogatory term often applied to women who have achieved success in traditionally male-dominated fields. It's essentially the idea that high-ranking women in positions of authority treat the women who work below them more critically than their male counterparts, and even that they can oppose or hinder the advancement of other women. It also is about a disassociation or seeing oneself as other, different than other women in organization. And it's interesting and frustrating, the whole phenomenon, because despite the emergence of the persisterhood narrative, this is a word which I love, um, and persisterhood is defined as women who join forces to persist and insist against any form of oppression to women and to promote the advancement of other women. Um, which is what this whole podcast is about. Now, there's an emerging empowering narrative to support the persisterhood and women supporting other women. But the queen bee narrative tends to get a lot more traction in the media. If you Google queen bee syndrome, it will yield dozens of articles. It's actually quite a resilient narrative, unfortunately. This attributing women's lack of advancement to women keeping other women from advancing. But as we discuss often in this podcast, this is an oversimplification of a much bigger and much larger and more complex set of variables. Studies show that the queen bee phenomenon is really more a result or a consequence of gender-biased social and organizational circumstances. In one study of around 100 senior-level women, it was found that women in masculine organizational cultures had uh, higher rates of queen bee phenomenon, and that this was therefore an outcome of gender discrimination experienced by women rather than a female trait or a female character deficit. There's also a pretty strong body of research challenging the legitimacy of the queen bee phenomenon, arguing um, that it lays the blame for women's lack of advancement on women themselves. You know, if women would just support each other, we could fix the problem. You see this narrative over and over again. It feels like every week we're talking about the ways in which we hear that steady diet of, if we could just fix ourselves, we could fix the problem. And it 
is very frustrating. Um, I talked about last week in our podcast, how we need to disrupt those uh, narratives. And even this idea, this narrative that we constantly hear of, we are sometimes our own worst enemies, the kinds of things that you hear that support the queen bee syndrome. We need to ensure our slow brains interrupt gender bias narratives. And I talked about this in last week's podcast, these narratives that impact our interpretations and just don't serve us. This falls directly into the realm of women blaming, unfairly putting the problem on our shoulders, pinning women against other women rather than addressing the very real and equitable structural organizational biases that negatively impact advancement outcomes for women. We have to interrupt any narrative that leads to behavior that doesn't serve us. We need to be diligent in shifting the narrative from fixing the women to fixing the pipeline and fixing the problems that are creating the broken pipeline. We need to reject rather than perpetuate negative stereotypes that women can't work together, that we're difficult to work for, that we don't support each other because, and this is a critical part of this, this negative narrative, which perpetuates the image of women being out of place in senior leadership roles, preserves a gendered status quo that just does not work for women. Williams and Dempsey in their 2014 work, which I talk about a lot, what works for women at work, Um, It is a very robust study, and it is very insightful in addressing a lot of these barriers and biases. They looked at corporate and social factors influencing Queen Bee. And this is where the lobsters in the boiling pot analogy I talked about in our previous episode emerged. When you've got lobsters in uh, a pot of water boiling, the only way out of that vertical pot is to climb on top of the other lobsters. And at the end of the day, only one lobster can make it out. If you think about it, this is a great metaphor for tokenism. When working women experience tokenism, which is you know where historically in their organizations, the behavior and the outcomes suggest that there's really only room for one woman to advance to those highest rungs. So women wanting to advance find themselves navigating this win-lose paradigm. You know, I have to win. If I don't get there, somebody else will, as opposed to we can all get there together. Indeed, studies show that when there are very few women in any organization, there's friction and not just friction amongst women, although that's what we hear mostly. There's um, all women leaders are less liked by men and women when there are few women leaders. When there are many women leaders in organizations, or there's a more egalitarian leadership structure with you know both men and women leading, um, people get along better. They're more supportive of each other. Women are more supportive of each other. Men are more supportive of women because there's a culture of support. When there's a logical perception that only so many women can succeed, it creates a culture of competition. Then gender or being a woman and supporting other women begins to feel like an impediment to our own advancement. And that's an organizational cultural problem. And so when that is the culture, women engage in behaviors oftentimes um, that don't serve them, but are understandable in those male-typed organizations. So this is not so much a gender-based character flaw, but it's really... a strategy, a coping mechanism to overcome 
stereotype biases to attempt to advance under very difficult circumstances. In last week's episode, we talked about using the four P's advancement model to identify problems and patterns in order to create processes to interrupt the patterns. And we're going to start that process a bit here as we look at Queen B syndrome. Too often, Queen B syndrome is the easy answer in identifying the problem, right? It's that quick brain response and it oversimplifies the problem and places the blame on women and suggests we're not ideal for leadership. And we know that is not the problem. So we, of course, need to dig deeper to identify the real problem and the societal and organizational structures and barriers that are impacting the problem. We must consider the biases that impact the perception of the queen bee. You know, why is that perception there? Sheryl Sandberg, Facebook's chief operating officer, once said, women aren't any meaner to women than men are to one another. Women are just expected to be nicer. Exactly, Cheryl, spot on. And those are the exact types of things we're talking about here when we address these biases. So what are the patterns then that are leading to these perceptions and influencing the types of behavior uh, that have led to this problem? Research shows there are common strategies for women who experience gender bias, discrimination, tokenism, and we're talking about ambitious, talented, competent women who want to advance. And of course, then they are going to have to respond to these biases if they want to get ahead. And these are some of the ways that the research shows women respond to biases that are seen as kind of the key tenets of Queen Bee Syndrome. The first is distancing or disassociation. This is that idea, you know, I'm not like other women. It's also sometimes called self-group distancing, you know, and think about it. All of the advice we hear is align yourself with the winners. And in a society where men represent almost 90% of top earner roles and 95% of top roles like CEO, clearly the winners are men. And so women are taking that best practice advice to advance under those very difficult odds. You know, I'm aligning myself with the winners. I am different than them and more like the in-group. I am more like the group that's winning. A second uh, tenet is the assimilating strategy, right? This is kind of part of social identity theory or in-group versus out-group. It's a little bit like distancing or disassociation. If you want to be in the in-group, And in leadership, based on the data, that's men. Um, I'm not saying it should be. I'm not saying it's fair that it is. But when we look at the data, we see that women are well represented in the middle. And, you know, there's that pyramid kind of shape where there's much less representation at the top levels. So if we want to be in the in-group, the top levels, then we have to assimilate. This is the thinking, right? Um, To behave more masculine, um, that's part of the... uh, initiation, so to speak. If you want to be in the in crowd, you have to be more like the in crowd. So there's this social identity threat. When faced with the threat of negative bias, the desire to maintain membership in the group under attack is lessened. You know, it's like, no, thanks. I'll stay over here with the group that's not under attack. Thank you very much. The group that's actually advancing. Um, This is clearly, even if you look at Maslow's hierarchy, the need for belonging You know, if we're trying to prove we belong, then there may be a tendency towards this assimilation or disassociation. Then we have the very unfortunate um, destructive leadership behaviors. And destructive leadership behavior is the theory related to negative leadership styles, negative behaviors like bullying or ridiculing or harassing. 
Um, this may seem extreme, but when we consider that lobsters in the pot analogy, you can understand how that type of an environment, that win-lose paradigm could result in these types of destructive leadership behaviors. And, and I think it's pretty clear and logical to assume they would for anyone, male or female. The difference is just that men don't look around and see that the only way up is, you know, they don't have the lobsters in the pot kind of paradigm. When they look at the top, there's a lot of people that look like them there. And so they're less likely to engage in these destructive leadership behaviors when they don't feel that threat. Next, we have system justification. And this one is a psychological reaction where we um, see people defending and justifying these highly resilient status quo, inequitable situation. So where oppressed or underrepresented groups struggle to make sense of an unfair or inequitable world or environment, they internalize these negative stereotypes. And I've talked about this as well in other podcasts where when women are constantly fed a steady diet of, you have all the opportunities in the world, the system is designed to help you and yet you're still not getting there. When we want to wrap our brains around that, it just doesn't make any sense. And so there's that tendency towards internalizing those negative stereotypes, which is really a very, very sad thing. We've got prescriptive bias. Um, we've talked about this in terms of stereotypical traits we associate with women. Again, women are expected to be helpful, warm, nurturing. The expectations for leadership and for men are very different. So even if women leaders are behaving very similar to the way their male counterparts are behaving, they are still more likely to be seen as unsupportive. Uh, I read a study about a women, uh, a group of women lawyers and male lawyers, and they interviewed all of the administrative assistants working for men and working for women. And it was really interesting to see the perceptions and all of the participants, all of the administrative assistants talked about their preference for working for male lawyers. But when the interviewers dug deeper, they found that Women talked about men yelling at them, their bosses, kind of shouting out orders and, and being uh, pretty aggressive and just short with them and just curt in every way. And they just saw that as kind of, well, you know, they're busy and that's just the way it is. And that's a tough industry and that's not personal. But when women lawyers behaved in, in these ways it, at all, even much less so, it wasn't perceived that way. It was kind of this idea of being mean to me and harassing me and so forth. And this all goes back to that prescriptive bias where we look at that disassociation between the way we expect women to be and behave versus the way women have to behave and how those perceptions are different. And this is all to say that gender differences in expectations can create perceptions of queen bees when they really just aren't there. Finally, there's just plain old math and sample size, okay? It's about data points. If you look at even the Fortune 500 and you, and you look at the data that shows that 95% of CEOs are men and 5% are women, 
you're going to remember the exceptions. Okay. So the reason sometimes people note the bad woman boss is because they have such a small sample size of women in those top leadership roles and it perpetuates, you know, the exception to the rules. So this is to say that when you have 95 male bosses, some of them are awesome and some of them are terrible. Some of them are um, empowering and uplifting and help move your career forward. And some of them are stifling and don't support you and do undermine. And we know that this is true, but if you've only had one or two women bosses, you really don't have an adequate sample size. Had you had 100 women leaders that you worked with, I'm sure you would have seen that some were good and some were bad, like all leaders. But when you have that small, small sample size that results from the inequity at those highest levels, then you start to see pay, people paying a lot of attention to the people at the top. And we know this is true. You know, if you have a woman CEO and she doesn't do well or the business doesn't do well, you'll hear the kinds of statements like, well, you know, do you really think we should bring another woman in? I've never heard anyone say, ooh, you know, that that last male CEO really didn't do very well. Maybe we shouldn't bring in another male. There just isn't this kind of expectation that the behaviors of one person have such an impact on the whole group. And we know from the research that with underrepresented and marginalized groups, this is often the case. So, you know, a lot of times we just have to take a step back and say, is this really a good data point? Is this really a significant data sample for me to be making these large generalizations. Here's the thing, and I hate to break it to the media and all of the people who love these storylines about the queen bee, that narrative, the organizations that love it because they are then exonerated for their underrepresentation when this explanation is perpetuated. Uh, the thing is, there's a lot of research and there's just a lot of common sense behavior that shows that the queen bee storyline is definitely losing its sting. There is so much, if you look at even social media, the positive impact of social media on the narrative is the amount of solidarity of women we see. I mean, there's so many algorithms that are constantly looking at hashtags um, on Twitter and Instagram to see which hashtags are most popular. And if you look at 2021, the first few months of the year, the posts that we see, the hashtags that we see that have women in them are largely focused on the kind of persisterhood messaging, the message of women helping other women advance and thrive. So the second most popular hashtag with women in it in the first few months of 2021, over 13 million hashtags were women empowerment and the fourth most popular women supporting women. And so you can start to see the full complexity and challenges to the queen bee narrative. You know, how do we reconcile? We've got this huge queen bee problem and this is why women aren't advancing with so much, so many podcasts and uh, communities and social media platforms out there helping women, uh, perpetuate this very different message, this persisterhood, this let's help women together we rise. So again, we have a really good reason to challenge the status quo and the bias here and to really explore it and think about ways we can interrupt the patterns that are leading to this. So how are we going to interrupt the patterns? What are some of the tools we can use? I want to start uh, with one that is so important, which is precision of language using the correct words 
to convey the exact thought the speaker intends to communicate. In other words, by using precise language, the speaker can communicate the actual thought, not something that can be kind of interpreted differently. The lesson of precision of language is very useful. It's an excellent takeaway. And here's how you do it. Number one, remove gendered language. Replace it with precise gender-neutral language. This requires using the slow brain to identify gendered words. So, you know, if you work for a person who's a narcissist, say that. That's not gendered. Narcissism is gender-neutral. It can be a man. It can be a woman. It can be anyone. But if there is not a gender-neutral word or equivalent word for a man, then the term is likely sexist and part of perpetuating the problem. So since there is no male equivalent to the term queen bee, despite the fact that men are as likely, the research shows, to be competitive with other men as women are, if not more so, and since there then is not a word for them in this regard, calling women queen bees devalues women. It is stereotypical and it contributes to the marginalization of women in leadership, and we need to combat this type of language with precision of language. So if your boss takes credit for your work, is overly critical, doesn't recognize your achievements, um, does not help elevate you or is getting in the way of your career, use that language. No need to bring in gendered language like queen bee. And when we start to use the correct words, we start to see those words all over, not just with women. If you say queen bee syndrome, that's, oh, I'm looking for women. I'm looking to see it. If we talk about narcissism or criticism or not being recognized for achievement, then we start to look for that in places and you'll start to see it there as well. So it will shift the perception from a gendered perception to a more realistic and equitable perception, which is that there's good bosses and bad bosses. And there's people who will undermine and hold you back. And there are people who won't in your career. And precision of language is a good way to begin the pattern of disruption. A second strategy is avoiding sweeping generalizations. You know, it's easy to say things like it's lazy, but it's easy to get women are so emotional. Um, A good rule in every domain, in every opportunity is to kind of disrupt that fast brain thinking when it just doesn't serve anyone. There's a hasty generalization fallacy where we draw conclusions on the basis of insufficient evidence. A prejudice is not a factual evidence-based conclusion, and it leads to this denigration and marginalization. So we need to avoid any of those sweeping generalizations because they don't serve women. They don't serve men. They don't serve underrepresented groups. They don't serve anyone. The third strategy is a common sense strategy that I talked about in my first podcast, but is often overlooked, which is don't play a game that is rigged against you. We know intuitively that together we rise and the research shows it when more women are in leadership roles, more women get promoted to leadership roles. People feel queen bee syndrome. That is what they feel. That is an interpretation. The data show that the more women are on boards, the more equitable the work environment is for women. The more women in top leadership roles, the more women get promoted into those top leadership roles. And that's a very different reality than the narrative of the queen bee. Um, So we can't just play the game. We need to change the game because it's a short-term game and a long-term loss. When we work to be in that in-group, 
you know, you're never going to be the winner of that game. The status quo, the existing power structure has proven that it does not work for women on the whole. Top level roles continue to remain male. The broken pipeline is incredibly resilient and we can't be a cog in the status quo by contributing to that storyline. A fourth consideration is favoritism threat. There's always this concern that women will be um, seen as biased if they help one another. Another damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. If you don't help other women, you know, then you're the kind of woman, the worst kind of woman, as they like to say in the media, who don't help other women. But if you try to help women, then you can be seen as biased and always being on the side of women. And so you have this whole favoritism thread. And so we want to recognize that. And if we see it and we start to feel it and we start to hear that narrative, we're going to stop and we're going to say, you know what, I'm just going to do the right thing here. I'm just going to um, help empower women. I'm going to help lift up women. And I'm not going to worry about that fallacy and that kind of favoritism threat, because um, at the end of the day, the bigger picture win is for more women to advance. Another thing we can do is identify the structures inside organizations that perpetuate the issue that need to be changed. Again, moving our focus from fixing the women to fixing the problems and fixing organizations. How does my organization or any organization perpetuate the problem and how can they mediate it? I did a study that I published in 2018 called Mediating Corporate Gender Bias and Queen Bee Syndrome Through Mentorship Tied to Key Performance Indicators. Some organizations had a real environment of women feeling like they were not um, supported and helped by women. But in other organizations, there was a very strong feeling of women being mentored both by women and men and being lifted in their careers and in their advancement. And what was different was less about gender and more about the policies and the performance indicators tied to the behavior. So in organizations where in order to be seen as having leadership potential, you had to show how you helped advance others and empower others. And when environments did that, people were much less likely to report both queen bee type of behaviors, but also conflict between men and women, women and other women. It just was not there when the environment was conducive to supporting others. And so that's an important thing to consider. Last week, my guest, Danette Sadith, talked about emotional intelligence. And this is such an important tool in our tool belt, especially as women, um, but all of us can hone this skill and evaluate what we're really dealing with, okay? So is this really a queen bee or is this just a tough boss? Is this behavior really is different from some of my male bosses or am I applying more meaning? Um, am I having different expectations and are others having different expectations of me? And how can you use good questions about expectations and precision of language to diffuse this? If you feel that you're dealing with a, a person who you feel exhibits these queen bee, what are the ways that you can 
a little bit, take control of the narrative, be precise about what's being asked of you, be precise about what you're doing that's different than your male counterparts or why the feedback you're getting differs and so forth. So using that precision of language, um, asking good questions about expectations, keeping good track of the responses, keeping good track of the work you do and being prepared to talk about it and to, to defend it. These are all ways that you can take control back when you're feeling that loss of control. And I have said on this podcast many times that it is where empathy meets pragmatism. And we've discussed some practical strategies here to be sure, but we also must identify and challenge those organizational structures that create barriers. Organizations need to change as well, and we need to call that out. And I do want to talk about that just a little bit as well. I want to give you all these strategies because they're so important, and we want to have the power and the mindset and the skill set and the tool set to uh, identify the problems and the barriers and uh, interrupt the patterns and the biases. But we do need to hold um, structures accountable that have distasteful constructs that um, contribute to women's lack of advancement. And the first thing is we need to challenge organizations to remove the threat that creates the conflict. So if the threat is there, the lobsters in the pot threat, the threat that I just, you know, I've got to get ahead and there's only room for one of us, create more opportunities at the top, create a culture that shows, not says, shows that there are equitable opportunities. This is thinking about how organizations walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And education needs to happen with people and organizations in terms of understanding the difference between public relations initiatives and inclusion initiatives. Public relations initiatives don't fix the broken pipeline. They improve the optics for the organization, but they don't fix the problem. We have to start judging organizations not on their slick communication about advancing women or even the programs and initiatives and all of the inclusive programming they implement. The proof is in the outcomes. It doesn't matter how big a game a company talks or an organization talks about all their initiatives and all of saying all the right things about how much they care about advancing women and what a priority it is. At the end of the day, you have to look and see if women continue to be underrepresented in those top pay, power, and prestige roles in organizations. You go into a job interview and you hear, we do this for women, we do this for women, we do this for women. And you look at their board of directors and it's mostly men. And you look at their women executives and they're few and far between. That tells a much more powerful story. You know, sometimes the results scream the truth, but we can't hear it because we're so overwhelmed by the even louder screams of here's what we're trying and here's what we're doing. And again, that's public relations. We need to look at the outcomes that move the needle and we need to hold organizations accountable for the outcomes. And that's really a critical point. The second thing This one works on just about every problem organizations face. We need to reward the behavior you want to see. And I talked about this a few minutes ago when I talked about the research I conducted where we could see how key performance indicators that were aligned with support tended to mediate lack of support. That should not be shocking. But we need to ensure that the behaviors that are rewarded in organizations are tied to our goals. That's the way we reward goals in all aspects of the workforce. 
If you want people to hit a goal, you tie performance to that and you reward that behavior. And so people feeling like uh, organizations are doing a good job is not the same as um, people knowing that the organization is doing a good job. Likewise, if you say advancing women is important, even if you have a million initiatives, it's not the same as showing that these initiatives are important. And some of the ways we can show that is by tying those initiatives to key performance indicators. I always laugh when I read uh, articles and stories that say, you know, it's just so hard to get women on boards. We just cannot find qualified women. And in the back of my mind, I think, why don't you offer a $10,000 bonus for everyone who brings a highly qualified woman who could absolutely meet the criteria to serve on boards and see how many qualified uh, female board candidates emerge. And this is all to say, we know as human beings that we behave in ways that are rewarded. So we need to challenge organizations to behave in ways that reward the change we want to see and the disruptions to the status quo that are necessary to create a more equitable environment for women wanting to advance in their careers. Each week, I end with a manifest statement. In this case, it's really a mantra to create a narrative that serves us better. So when you find that queen bee narrative sneaking in, I am going to challenge all of my warrior women listeners to interrupt with a counter narrative. And here's what I suggest. I reject all negative stereotypes that don't serve women's advancement. I honor unity and know that we all rise together and that women support women. I suggest you repeat this as needed. It is very powerful. One of my favorite quotes is Maya Angelou, who said, do your best until you know better, then do better. And that is really the purpose of the Advancing Women podcast, so that more of us can know and that knowing will help us all do better. For all you warriors listening who want to continue to transcend barriers and thrive, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so make sure to hit that subscribe button. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback and ideas on topics you'd like to hear me cover in more depth or new topics you'd like me to explore. So please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com with your ideas and feedback. That's D-R-D-E-S-I-M-O-N-E at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank my producer, Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast. It's totally badass and I love it. And a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.